Last week we talked about Jesus as a poet. I don't know how many of you were buying that, but uh, hopefully once we had a chance to talk through it, you understand more what I was talking about. That even though technically maybe not all of Jesus' prose that is recorded in the New Testament or in the Gospels is poetry technically, but it all functions as poetry. Jesus has the heart of a poet. And that makes all the difference. When I was in uh, college and I was studying literature and creative writing, I had a professor, my favorite professor. He was a, a short story writer himself, a creative writer. And I was taking creative writing from him. And he said, you know, a writer is not just someone who puts words on a page. A writer is not just someone who writes. A writer, a real writer, is someone who sees the connections in life that others miss and therefore has something to write about. I thought that was great. That made perfect sense. Jesus is someone who saw the world with the Father's eyes. Jesus and the Father were one. What he saw of the unseen connection, what he saw of the hidden connection existing between everything and everyone gave him something to say. He saw the unseen world of spirit and that gave him the heart of a poet trying to express what can't be expressed, expressing the unexpressible, the inexpressible. How do you do that? Basically, that's the definition of a mystic. It comes from the Greek word mystikos, which means secret or hidden. We get our word mystery from it as well. But it's one who sees the unseen, who sees the hidden, who experiences truth beyond the limits of the intellect going beyond just rational thought, being going, going on empirical proof, sees underneath the veneer, underneath the hood. That is what a mystic is. Now the question is, how do you get there? Well, that's where contemplation comes in. Sometimes we use a contemplative and a mystic interchangeably. And they're close, but no cigar, right? A mystic is about the state of being in that place where you can see these hidden connections. Contemplation is the practice or the doing of subtraction that is those four S's we talk about. Silence, solitude, stillness, simplicity. Subtracting things out of our life that get in the way of being able to see these unseen connections, to hear God's voice in the silence. In this sense, contemplation is the action. It's the doing of the subtraction that allows us get to get to the being of the mystic. I know that's a fine distinction, but maybe it helps a little bit. Contemplative practice is how we get to the place of being able to see with the Father's eyes, to see what Jesus was seeing when he looked out at the world. I always think of uh, Neo in The Matrix, you know, when he could finally see The Matrix and see all it. You know, it's almost like maybe we could somehow more clearly see the unseen connection, how everything is a web of spirit connected. You know, it, it's, uh, I don't know, trying to put words on something that can't be expressed. But Jesus was this person. Jesus was a contemplative. He practiced contemplative prayer. That's what he was doing out in the wilderness when he was facing down those three symbolic temptations. All of our programs, right? 
for survival and security, for affection and esteem, for power and control. All of those areas that are at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that's what he was fighting down, the compulsions to act on those needs unthinkingly, unconsciously, creating havoc wherever he goes, dysfunction. And he did it through the silence and the solitude and the stillness and the simplicity of the wilderness. And when he came back, he said, I and the Father are one. I don't do anything of my own initiative anymore. I only do what the Father does through me. Jesus used contemplative practice to get to the place of the mystic, where he could see as the Father sees life, and the place of the poet trying to express what can't be expressed. The truth of God can't be expressed. God's nature can't be expressed. There is no way that limited minds can do this. But poetry comes the closest. Poetry using all the metaphor and figures of speech and illusions, imagery, stories. But even Jesus' prose, when he spoke in prose, is also poetic. It has all of those elements because that's the only way that we can point at truth that can't be expressed. Now, in the West, if you think about it, we sort of developed in ourselves, in the modern West, a culture of engineers. <laughs> Doug is actually an engineer. We may have a few more. But we're kind of a culture of engineers. We want everything to be lined up. We want it to be logical. We want it to be clear. We want it to be concise. We're bottom line and executive summary oriented people. Poetry kind of irritates us. We don't really have patience for poetry in our culture anymore. We want that bottom line. It's funny, um, you know, I'm a teacher and I, I speak as plainly as I can on, on Sundays and when I'm working with somebody. But when I write, I kind of wax more poetic. And it's been interesting how people get irritated by that. You know, it's like, oh, can't you just say it? And it's like, well, you know, some things can't just be said. I'm trying to wrap around it and evoke things. But I understand that. There are times when I get irritated if someone is taking too long to say something. But if we could just slow down. Remember, the ancient world didn't operate at the speed we have. The mode of travel was your two feet shod in sandals. You moved at four miles an hour walking pace. You had time to talk and to think and to relate and to ponder things. We're moving at a completely different place. And because of that, we really don't know what to do with Jesus. Rohr, Richard Rohr, um, just a couple weeks ago, had a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And it was interesting because he said that he has heard that the Sermon on the Mount, the essence of all of Jesus' teaching, is the least quoted scripture in all official Catholic documents the least quoted scripture. Why? Why would that be? Because we don't know what to do with Jesus. When he speaks the way he speaks, when he uses the hyperbole, the exaggerated imagery that he uses, when he uses the metaphor, when he uses non-literal examples and, and gives us non-literal commands even, what are we supposed to do with that? And so we spend much more time with Paul. Paul's letters form the basis of the institutional church, at least in the West, because Paul thinks more like us. You know, Paul was able to make the bridge, the cross, between East and West and speak to a Western audience. And it, it's classic, if you think about it. There is always first the poet or the visionary, followed by 
the teacher or the administrator. Isn't that the way it always works? And if you ever worked for a startup company, you realize that there is the, the start, <laughs> the visionary, you know, the entrepreneur, I like to say the entrepreneur, <laughs> who usually can't administer his or her way out of a paper bag, right? They're the ones with the vision, but they can't run the company. And so there has to be this pair because they're separate skill sets, very separate skill sets. And so how are we going to be able to deal with this? We need both in order to have a group of people that are moving forward in tandem. But we see it in all areas of life. We see it in business. We certainly see it in the church. And we also see it in politics, the visionary and the administrator. And what has always been fascinating to me that if you look back through history, the last 2,500 years or so, and you look at the great teachers who started schools of thought or religions, you see those pairs in operation. Think about Socrates. As far as we know, Socrates didn't write a single word. Everything we know about Socrates comes from his student Plato. Think about Confucius. Confucius did write, but it's really Mencius who codified and made Confucianism what it is today, and that was centuries later. Lao Tzu, the beginning of the Taoist movement, wouldn't write anything down his entire life, even though people were begging him traditionally. This is ancient China until the very end of his life. And he wrote one small treatise called the I Ching. But his student, Chuang Su, again, a couple centuries later, is the one who expanded and codified and gave structure to Taoism as we know it today. And then you have Jesus. If Jesus wrote anything down, we don't know anything about it. The only thing that we know that Jesus wrote was when he doodled in the sand as they were bringing the adulterous woman to him. Other than that, there's no writing from Jesus. Everything came later from his followers. But it's really Paul who is the one who really codified and worked. And Paul was doing something different than Jesus. Jesus was working individually, heart to heart, and trying to infuse an understanding that couldn't be expressed, only could be evoked and pointed to, and hopefully inviting and instilling the desire to engage in a journey of his followers one-on-one. Paul was working with groups, and, and by remote control through surrogates, he had to operate differently. But Paul was a poet, too. Paul was a mystic, too. When he talks about going up to the third heaven, what do you think that is? That's a mystical experience. When he talks about the beginning of his ministry, his conversion on the Damascus Road, and the vision that he had there, that's a mystical experience but how he's functioning through his letters. And remember, his letters always served a purpose, right? They were instructing, they were teaching, they were correcting, they were remedial, you know? They were there for a purpose, and those are what survive. His instructions to these groups of people on how to conduct themselves as a group. Very different purpose than what we see in Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. There's an overlap, of course. As I said, Paul was a mystic and a poet. Chuang Tzu, definitely a mystic and a poet. If you read his writings, it's amazing. But they were all codifying an earlier concept, an earlier teaching from the visionary, from the poet, from the mystic. Now, this is important for us to grasp. That Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the essence of his teaching, I mean, basically, if you lost the rest of the New Testament, but you just had Matthew 5, 6, and 7, You'd have the essence. That's enough. 
You could take that and you could run with it and you could be a follower of Jesus if you had that much. The rest amplifies, of course, and gives us the richness of it. But that was the, that was the, the essence of it all. But from an institutional point of view, from a group point of view, from a church point of view, the Sermon on the Mount is essentially anarchy. There is no unifying force there. What Jesus says just blows apart the ability to hold groups together, to administer groups, to, to legislate groups, to discipline groups. It's not there in the Sermon on the Mount. It's essential to each individual follower in the micro to be able to move into that space that Jesus is creating. But it's impossible to legislate it in a group, in the macro. And also, on the other hand, contemplation and mysticism can't be allowed to be completely free form, individualistic, completely subjective. We see what happens when individuals get so much inside their own head and their own thoughts with no accountability, with nothing that holds them in place. They can go out into crazy places. What happened in Waco? What happened in Jonestown? We talk about the cults, some of these suicide cults. We can get way off track. The kind of contemplation we're talking about, the kind of mysticism we're talking about, is still grounded and steeped in Scripture grounded and steeped in tradition has to be there. Otherwise, things can get off kilter. It has to be grounded in the group ethic and also in the group law because all of that limits error. It gives us the side, the guardrails. It gives us the the limits of the playing field within which we have to individually find out what we're convinced of. But at least it it gives us the guardrails. The Sermon on the Mount, as poetry, as I said, is expressing the inexpressible. It's trying to get this truth out as loosely as possible, but as tight as necessary. What Jesus talks about and what he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount is not absolutely new and groundbreaking. It is taking his tradition, the tradition of the prophets, of the entire Jewish memory, but kind of putting it into a new context, making it more intimate, bringing it in. Rather than God being distant, God is now Abba, Father, the one in whose lap you can crawl. But these traditions are still there. Jesus doesn't create completely new ground or a new wheel here, but he's bringing it in through poetry as loosely as possible, giving people room to move and a place to move in, not just obey blindly but still adhering to the signpost and the guidepost of his tradition. And this, in this way, he's navigating a liminal path. We've talked about this before, that threshold, that space between, right at the doorway, between worlds, pointing to a contemplative and mystical path, but also is still providing the guide rails and the boundaries necessary to keep us from crazy town. And so... His metaphorical and his figurative language evokes the way, but specific commands that he makes ground us in a real relationship. Remember when he tells us how to pray? That's a specific command. He tells us what to stay away from and where to go. 
When he talks us about loving the enemy, he's defining the way that love really works. When he talks about not judging, when he talks about not worrying, when he talks about the Beatitudes that give us a specific picture of what this person looks like, it's not all just free form. He's grounding it in something. He's carving a middle way forward, balanced between these two, between law and love, between knowing and intellect, right? And just love and subjective experience. Anybody here remember Casey Kasem? I'm, I'm, I'm dating myself here. Yeah, Casey Kasem. Remember, he was, he, that voice was so great. He had a tagline that he said at the end of every one of his broadcasts. Remember what it was? He says, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. I love that. Keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. In a sense, I think that's what Jesus is doing. He's grounding us with specific commands that lock us into relationship, that lock us into the Old Testament law. The law is not invalidated. He says that right at the beginning of the sermon. I'm not here to abolish the law, but I'm here to fulfill it in a way that you may not recognize. But that grounds us. It gives us the guardrails. It gives us the playing field. It keeps us out of harm's way. But he's also giving us the wings. The poetry is the wings. The poetry is the permission to be able to go out and connect directly with our Father. We don't have to go through the clergy. We don't have to go through the doctors of the law. We can experience our Father directly. That's where the poetry takes us. And the Sermon on the Mount is a perfect balance between intellect and experience, as we're talking, between knowing and loving. It's a balance that limits each other. Checks and balances, kind of like our bicameral government, right? Checking and balancing. Because the truth of the matter is that we can only approach God in love, not in intellect. But if we approach God without any rational thought whatsoever, we can devolve into narcissism. It all just gets turned inward. And we lose the focus. We lose the sense of community and accountability and structure and discipline and service and all the things that Jesus is careful to have coded into the sermon. I've been rereading The Cloud of Unknowing. It's a 14th century Western Christian classic in contemplative and, and mystical practice. There was one little paragraph here that I think really says what I'm trying to get across to you. This anonymous author writes, It is God and he alone who can fully satisfy the hunger and longing of our spirit, which transformed by his redeeming grace, is enabled to embrace him by love. He whom neither men nor angels can grasp by knowledge can be embraced by love. For the intellect of both men and angels is too small to comprehend God as he is in himself. Try to understand this point. Rational creatures such as men and angels possess two principal faculties, a knowing power and a loving power. No one can fully comprehend the uncreated God with his knowledge. But each one, in a different way, can grasp him fully through love. Truly, this is the unending miracle of love, that one loving person, through his love, can embrace God, whose being fills and transcends the entire creation. And this marvelous work of love goes on forever. For he whom we love is eternal. 
Whoever has the grace to appreciate the truth of what I am saying, let him take my words to heart. For to experience this love is the joy of eternal life, while to lose it is eternal torment. I read from Julian of Norwich during the communion meditation, saying so much of the same thing, you know. It is God and he alone who can truly satisfy the hunger and longing of our spirit. And it's through love that we connect with God because we can't do it through our minds. Our minds will take us so far and leave us right at the edge of a brick wall. We can't go any further, but love can take us the rest of the way. Basically, the contemplative way is to recognize the limits of our intellect, that mind can only take us so far. And then further, to begin the process of losing our sense of self to step away from the egoic mind, that intellect, that voice that is always talking to us. Lose our sense of self in love, in connection with God, in connection with each other. Now, the sermon was most likely a catechism for early church followers. That means that the early church followers understood that the sermon was the essence of Jesus' teaching, all condensed into a small place. The Gospels of Matthew and Luke were probably written 30 to 50 years after the crucifixion. Have you ever considered that? And it depends on what scholar you're listening to or teaching. Mark was probably written first. It could have been written as early as the 50s, CE, first century, which would have been 20 years after the crucifixion. But Matthew and Luke were probably written in the 70s, most likely. It could have been the 80s, some late dated out to the end of the century. John was definitely written at least after, between the two Jewish-Roman wars, 70 and 135, around the turn of the first century. So we've got a gap of 30 to 50 years from the crucifixion to when those Gospels are written. So what was going on in that 30 to 50 years? I mean, we're talking about a couple generations here, right? Well, it was oral tradition. See, we have to understand that the ancient world was very different than the world that we have now. And so, Jesus spoke the words that he spoke. And he spoke them in poetry for a very specific reason. He spoke them so that they could be remembered, so that they could be retold in an oral tradition. I found a a little article, and this is by Jonathan Pennington, and guess what? He's a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Now, I have quoted two Baptists in about a month now, so I I am showing my openness, my wokeness, I guess. Jesus' sermon is meant to be memorized and to serve as a source for constant meditation. In the modern Western world, we're flush with Bibles. Literacy rates are remarkably high. As a result, most Americans and Europeans interested in Jesus and the sermon can easily find a copy and read it. Google Sermon on the Mount, and you can easily find countless translations and explanations. This is good. However, this isn't how the sermon was originally received, nor the kind of pedagogical context in which it was intentionally produced. Pedagogical, just teaching, you know, the kind of teaching context in which it was intentionally produced. Rather, the sermon comes from a time and a culture that concentrated on the ear more than the eye. The sermon, for both Jesus' original speaking and Matthew's writing, is designed as an aural memorizable meditation device. It's one of Matthew's five teaching blocks that gather together Jesus' teaching on various themes. 
presents them in a memorable thematic structure, usually in sets of three, with vivid images and poetic language, so that would-be disciples can easily hear, memorize, and thereby meditate on what the Master has said. To be a disciple is to memorize the teacher's sayings and to model one's life on his. Matthew is the gospel that most scholars agree that there was possibly, in, in my mind, certainly, a Hebrew or Aramaic original that was then translated into Greek, rather than Greek being the original. Matthew was written specifically to Jews. It is the most Jewish of the Gospels. It makes sense then that this one would have been presented in a way that they were used to getting their information. People were illiterate. Most of the people Jesus spoke to were illiterate. There was no printing press. There was no way to make copies of anything. What they heard, they needed to retain in a way. When I get done with 30 or 40 minutes of a message, how much do you retain? just by hearing. But if I were to do it in a sing song, yeah, there's, there's the engineer back there with his iPad taking color-coded notes. But if I were to deliver what I deliver in a verse form, even with rhyme, and you, we were repeating it back and forth, and then you repeated it and said it to everyone that you were with at intervals, and if you passed it on to your children, did you see what's going on? This is the way that the ancient world functioned. This is the way that indigenous people still function. He says, I haven't yet memorized the entirety of the sermon, much to my regret, but I regularly take long walks and recall and recite the portions that I have memorized. I'm always amazed at the fresh power, the new insights, and the cross-canonical connections that flood my mind, things that I never noticed, despite multiple readings and thorough literary study. This is why the sermon was spoken and written. Try it. I have uh, studied and uh, even wrote about the song lines of the Aborigines of Australia. And if you don't know what the song lines are, it's exactly what we're talking about. The Aborigines, who are probably the oldest people on the face of the earth, their, their history can go back at least 60,000 years and probably longer. They, they span the end of the last ice age in, in uh, Australia. And they never created a, an agriculture or a site-based culture. They've always been nomadic. They've always moved about the continent, you know, following the seasons, following food sources and water sources. And so what they developed was a portable spirituality. They didn't write things down. They created songs that told the stories of their creator beings, the ones who created the land. And as they created the land, they created the landmarks. And so the landmarks are in the song lines and the water sources and the food sources and everything that they needed to survive on long treks. By simply learning the song lines as a child, repeated over and over again and countless fires at night, they could recite them as they walked through the land and navigate and guide themselves over sometimes hundreds of kilometers. When the first white men came to Australia, they are amazed that the Aborigines could track trackless desert for hundreds of kilometers without the aid of any kind of navigation or compass because they were reciting the song lines as they went that guided them from landmark to landmark and food source to food source, a portable spirituality that they couldn't lose because they were the book. This is the culture that we're talking about. These ancient peoples were the book. Now that is not to say that certain people didn't write down the sayings of Jesus contemporaneously with him speaking it. And most scholars believe that there was a sayings gospel 
or two or three sayings gospels that Matthew and Luke later on incorporated into their gospels. Matthew apparently took the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, the entirety of this early catechism, and put it into three chapters of his gospel. But Luke takes that same material and spreads it out over his entire gospel with slightly different translations and placing in different places. But the material is still there. This oral tradition that was being recited over and over again, that the evangelist then took the eyewitnesses' account and the people's memory of what Jesus said. Just to try to bring this home, because I think this is such an important part, imagine if, how many of you can remember John F. Kennedy's assassination and presidency? Uh, yeah, we were, I was pretty little, but I still remember parts of it. Imagine if nothing had ever been written about Kennedy's presidency or assassination. It's been 60 years, give or take, right, since that. Imagine if there was never a picture taken, if there was never a recording, if there was never any kind of documentation whatsoever about Kennedy's presidency or assassination. And now we're 60 years out. But what did happen was that the people who thought that his presidency was important, the people who revered him and wanted their children to remember him, would have been reciting things that he said. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. I was there at the inauguration. I remember that. And then you recite that to your children, and you tell other things, and you tell about the assassination, and you tell about what he meant over and over again. And maybe a few snippets are written down here or there. And then finally, someone here decides, you know, I think it's a good idea to write all this stuff down and make an entire account. And so I'm going to talk to everybody who... That's what the evangelists did. That's what Matthew and Luke did. But what they were pulling from was this oral tradition, this ability of the people to remember, to recite, and Jesus' ability to express in such a way that they could remember and recite. The sermon is this full collection of Jesus' sayings. I mean, it's... it's it's not impossible that he delivered the whole thing on one hillside at one time, but it's probably not likely, simply because it is spread out and quoted differently in Luke. But since it was expressed as a poetic bridge between knowing and loving, it is still open to great interpretation and unfortunately misinterpretation. And though every poet intends for his or her material to be subjectively internalized, right, and experienced, a poet wants that to happen, realizes that everybody is going to hear the material differently. And for them, it is true if it's authentic, right? But there also needs to be limits to the error that can happen in subjective interpretation if the poetry is now going to be used as a basis for doctrine, as a basis for law, as a basis for the rules of a group to function, and that people are going to be penalized and excommunicated. If we're going to do that with this poetry, then we really got to be careful. Because there may be many right ways to interpret, but a whole lot of damage and abuse can be done if it's misinterpreted. Misinterpreted. I can't really say the word. How is the sermon, and Jesus in general misunderstood and misinterpreted. If Jesus is this mystical poet and contemplative, and I know that's still a, a premise out there, 
then we can only understand him from that context, understand him from within a poetic understanding. We talked about contemplation is the practice or the doing of subtraction that takes us to the being of mysticism that allows us to be able to see that oneness, see what is hidden, see through the Father's eyes. And the balance between the two is the key here. Contemplative doing or knowing and mystical being or love. If we approach the sermon from one side or another to the exclusion of the other, the message of Jesus breaks down. Because either we're going to think that we understand the whole thing literally, right? And we're going to create laws out of those literal concepts that we get from Jesus' teaching that are going to be absurd at the literal level. I mean, think about it. Jesus says literally to gouge out your eye if it causes you to sin. He tells you to cut off your hand and cut off your foot if it causes you to sin. Now, most of us realize that he's not speaking literally there. Right? But he also says that even if you have an angry thought, you are guilty before the court. Even if you haven't hit or murdered anybody, you just have an angry thought. And if you just look at a woman with lust, forget about adultery, then you're already guilty. There are people who take that literally. I have heard radio sermons that say, I, men, you can't watch TV commercials because they're going to cause you to lust. And if you lust, then you're already guilty. I mean, it sounds kind of silly on one level. On another level, we understand that Jesus is trying to get us to nip something in the bud when it's still small. But to take it to the literal place, the kind of pressure that that puts on people, divorce and adultery is huge. To take Jesus literally when he talks about unchastity being the only reason for divorce and that if a person remarries, if they haven't had unfaithfulness in the first marriage, that's tantamount to adultery in and of itself. You know what that has done to people? How that has excluded them from the church because they can't get married and they can't remarry or they can't get divorced? I have watched pastors send women back usually to dysfunctional and dangerous relationships because of how they understood literally these passages. And if you put them back into the historical context, nothing could be further from the truth. This is not what Jesus is saying. But just taking the text there and understanding it literally, this is what we get. This is why we have to be so careful if we're trying to understand what Jesus is saying. He says to lend to anyone who asks of you. If someone asks you to borrow something, you lend it. How many of you do that? Always? Is that always a good idea to keep giving stuff away to people when they just ask you? You know, That would be a disaster. It would be enabling. It would be codependent. It would be a whole lot of things that we talk about here. This is not what Jesus is talking about. There are others that he talks about. Be you perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How much pressure does that put on unless we understand what he means by perfection, which is not what we think it means? If you forgive your brother, then your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive your brother, then neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. What does that do to the idea of perfect love, unconditional love? I'll be back to being trained seals, working for a fish. We have to understand the concept and the context and what Jesus is talking about. He says, don't worry about what you will wear or what you will eat. Look at the birds. Look at the field, the lilies of the field. You know, God will feed you. God will clothe you. 
Well, there's the fire extinguisher of ambition, isn't it? Do we really just have to wait around for God to feed us and clothe us? And what happens when Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat? How do we put those two together? This is the problem. If we approach the Sermon on the Mount, if we approach Jesus from a literal point of view, as if we know what he is talking about from a literal point of view, we're going to end up being abusive, especially when we turn these things into law. If we approach Jesus all head, all intellect, all knowing, just knowing, it creates a legalistic list of works and standards that end up taken as dogma. What's the difference between dogma and doctrine? (laughs) Well, All dogma is doctrine, but not all doctrine is dogma. Dogma is something that is taken as authoritative and true, even though it has absolutely no evidence for support. It's just true because somebody said so. That's dogma. In a case like this, that's all you can do if you're going to take that as authoritative, except you're looking at the literal scripture. But this is something that we really need to take a look at. If we approach the sermon from the intellect alone, This is what happens. But if we go the other way and we approach it all just from a point of view of love, in other words, if we think we don't understand any of it intellectually anymore, it's just all about love and it's all about grace, then there are no more standards that we can work with. There's no more guardrails. And more importantly, there's no work for us to do. It's all done. It's all God's love. All we have to show is show up and pray our fealty to God, our loyalty to God, and then everything is done. This is what Martin Luther came at, because he was so about at the beginning of the Reformation 500 years ago that everything, that salvation was all by faith through grace alone. There were no works to be done. And they did that both theologically and also politically because they were trying to get out of the work and obligation-based system of the Roman Church, the Catholic Church. But he was so strong on it. When he comes to the epistle of, of uh, James, he's appalled because James is all about works. There's things you need to do. Your faith is dead without works. And James and the Sermon on the Mount are cut from the same cloth. James and Jesus were brothers, after all. They, t- they taught so much the same way. And in the Sermon on the Mount... Martin Luther also saw all of these works that needed to be done that seemed to be invalidating justification by faith alone through grace. He wanted the gospel, the the epistle of James thrown out. He called it the epistle of straw. The sermon he wasn't going to throw out, but he tried to invalidate it by saying it is a list of impossible standards, impossible ideals, ideals that nobody can live up to. Therefore, it just breaks us over the back of the law and sends us back to God's grace, realizing that there's nothing that we can do. This is what happens if we're all love and grace. It creates a passivity in us, an inability to do the work of salvation that Paul was talking about when he said, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, which then we reinterpreted as respect and passion, not the kind of fear that would be terror. But this passivity keeps us from doing the work that we need to do, not to earn God's acceptance, That invalidates Paul. But to quiet ourselves enough to be able to see the unseen oneness, that work of contemplation we're talking about. 
Once we can start to see Jesus and interpret Jesus in this contemplative, mystical poetry, and within this balance between the two, you're going to see it everywhere. Not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but everything, especially the red letters throughout the Gospels. And I just wanted to have one example for you. How are we doing? And this is the first beatitude at Matthew 5, starting right at verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he began to teach them. And the first thing he said is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What are we supposed to do with that? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It sounds beautiful, but what does it mean? Do you all know what poor in spirit means? And if you think you know what poor in spirit mean, it might even be worse if you don't know what it means. Because when I've asked people and polled them before, they usually think it means lacking in spiritual gifts, lacking in any sense of spirituality, just a secular carnal person. Why would Jesus say you're blessed then if you're poor in spirit? There are four operative and key words and phrases in this one line, and we need to know what they mean. First of all, poor in spirit, meskina ruch in Aramaic, really means an attitude of poverty even if you're rich. It's talking about being humble. It's talking about being vulnerable. It's talking about continuing to be grateful even if your situation in life is difficult. In other words, that idea of the anavim that runs through all of the Old Testament and all of Jesus' teaching as well the person who is on the margins, the person who realizes that they're vulnerable, the person that realizes that the only one left that they can rely on is God himself. And in that relationship, they find their place and they find their gratitude and they find their dependence and yet their cared forness at the same time. That attitude is everything in Jewish tradition and it's everything to Jesus. He says, you're blessed if you have that attitude. But we have to understand what blessed means. Tobe, which is a form of taba, which is goodness. And we've talked about that meaning ripeness or goodness. But it can mean happy. It can mean enriched. It can be whole. It can be balanced. And the most important thing to understand about tobe, we're not being blessed from the outside in by God in a passive way. We're being coming whole and enriched and balanced and happy from the inside out through the development of our attitude of the poverty of spirit. Do you see the difference? It's not like we're sitting around asking and waiting to be blessed. It is happening as the outpouring from inside out, as we follow the path that Jesus has laid out that takes us to the place of the anavim. And the kingdom of heaven, Malkuta Dashmaya, We think of it as a place. We think of it as heaven of the next life. We think of it as an actual kingdom. But most accurately, in English, it could be translated as the reign of unity. Malkutha is the principles by which the king reigns, not the territory of a kingdom. And Dashmaya is the place of unity, the place of oneness, the place of God's throne. And most importantly, It's talking about an attitude or a quality of life that is here and now, not there then someplace. And then this idea of ownership, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or some translations, the kingdom belongs. We get a legalistic idea of ownership. Again, we get this this wrong idea of a reward given to us for something we do well. But if you take a look at Matthew 19, verse 14, Jesus is talking about children here. 
And he says, let the children, and the word there is talia, which means both child and domestic slave at the same time, which deepens the understanding here. Let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Now, there's that idea of ownership again in the New American Standard. But take a look at it from the New King James or the King James. Same Matthew 19, 14. But Jesus said, allow the little children to come to me and do not forbid them. For of such, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And then if you take a look at it in a literal translation from the Aramaic, from the Peshitta, then Yeshua said to them, allow the children to come to me and do not hinder them. For of those who are like these is the kingdom of heaven. Do you see the difference? The kingdom is not something that you earn that is a reward that you enter if you do something right. You are the kingdom. When you do the work that develops the attitude of the humility and the vulnerability and the presence and the gratitude of the Talia, of the Anavim, inside out, active, not passive, we could finally translate Matthew 5.3 fully from an Aramaic concept like this. Whole and complete, balanced, healed, and enriched are those who understand and accept their powerlessness, who live with a sense of vulnerability and gratitude, an attitude of dependence and submission, regardless of their station in life, for they are kingdom itself, the image of kingdom's fulfillment. And I got one more from the message. Good old Gene Peterson. He says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. (laughs) With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. Not bad. And a lot shorter. This is this perfect balance we're talking about. There is a contemplative journey. There is work that we must do. Jesus is saying, there's work you got to do. Most people won't do it. That's why the gate is constricted and the way is narrow that leads to life because most people aren't going to do this work. But if you'll do the work, if you'll abide in my word, in the fullness and the essence of my teaching and my life, then you're my disciples. Then you'll know the truth. And the truth will make you free of all of that Maslow stuff at the bottom end. You know, all of those compulsions and all of those needs. We need to do the work. The first followers of Jesus were followers of the way. They knew they needed to do the work. Paul knew that you needed to do the work in respect and passion. But not doing it to earn God's acceptance, to develop that anavim, that poverty in spirit attitude, to clear the illusion that we can earn anything spiritually at all anyway. Because we can't. We can't earn what is already a free gift? How do you earn what is just there for the taking? What already is and always has been the underlying, hidden, mystical truth of all creation. That we're already one. That everything that the Father has is already ours. That God is love. Love is oneness and connection, and oneness and connection is the basis of everything that we see, everything that is around us, including us and all of us. Once we do the contemplative subtraction, this work that Jesus is talking about, 
it will take us from everything in ourselves that separates us from being able to see with the Father's eyes and have that quality of life that Jesus calls kingdom. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. It's ours anytime we want if we can strike the balance between knowing and loving and hear Jesus from his heart, that heart of a poet. Let's pray. Father, you are a poet. You speak to us in ways that are not direct, extra rational. We need to learn to listen to you as you speak to us. Help us in that. Help us to put down our engineer hats and to pick up the pen of the poet, even if we never write a word, but to begin to see life more from that point of view, not as tasks to be done on a spreadsheet, but moments to collect emotions, relationships, images that we try real hard not to name in our minds and turn them into objects, but that we just experience in real time as they pass before us. Help us to live life more at four miles per hour, at a walking pace, with time to be able to see what is going past us, to engage, to be here and now primarily, so that we really are present and understand what love is all about and see the oneness underneath the veneer of everything we experience. Thank you, Father, for this teaching that you give us. Thank you again for the model of your saints. Help us to become saints ourselves in the sense that we are those who also see the sanctity and the beauty and the immediacy of all our relationships. Thanks, Father, for your love, your constancy. Never let us forget. We can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody, please stand.